for Holy Week, we're going to go through Luke. We've been, I think we had part 40 of John last week. We will finish John after uh, we look into Luke with the triumphal entry here in chapter 19, verse 28, if you want to follow along. Well, Monday, Thursday, we'll be hitting the Luke's, uh, his revealing of that, uh, and then Luke, on Easter, we'll hit one of the Luke passages in Luke 24. So just to kind of set this, since we haven't been in Luke uh, uh, at all for a while, what immediately precedes this triumphal entry is uh, uh, the parable of the ten minas or expensive coins, uh, one of the many parables in, uh, in Luke and Matthew of Jesus' uh, kingdom. He's trying to tell us what his kingdom is. So that kind of sets up this triumphal entry because they're kind of trying to proclaim him a king. So we learn in this parable that the king, God himself, came first to graciously equip his servants. And his second coming, we find out in Luke, it's going to be for judgment. And that's something we see throughout Scripture. Jesus' first coming, this is, you see this in John 3, is to, as it says in John 3, 17, that God did not send his son into the world to convict the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And then it goes on that whoever believes has that salvation. So his second, and we see this in the parable. Um, they heard these things. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. It's kind of interesting how Luke sets this up. Uh, it wasn't going to appear immediately, not in its full consummation. As we look at the kingdom, what does it mean to be part of God's kingdom? It's to be a follower of Jesus now. And that's as much as we can get. That's the full measure we can have until he comes again. And then we get the consummation, the new heaven and the new earth. In the parable itself, he talks about the grace. But as far as these enemies of mine, those who've rejected, those who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I didn't write this. It was in Luke. You know, it's, it's very clear that judgment is something that will come to those who don't believe, and that's essentially what Jesus is going to come back the second time. We're kind of looking at Jesus coming here the first time. So, verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So he comes in. He and his disciples go to these towns of Bethany and, and Bethpage, located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, 
which lay to the east of Jerusalem, and I do have a map for you. If you look at this, uh, it's a kind of a nice map. It's a top graph. Here's the Temple Mount. This is how the old city, uh, the temple is on the east side, facing east, of course. And here is Bethany is about probably about three to four miles straight to the east of there. And Bethphage is up. This is a less used road. The Jericho Road is the most used road. And here's the Mount of and here's Gethsemane. And if you go into the Gospels, and we did that when we were in John, you're going to see him. He's just on the other side. In fact, if you go there today, you take this little road up here and come down there and you end up in Bethany. You don't, you don't know that you're out of Jerusalem because it's kind of grown all together there. But these are all, here's a half a mile. So, it, you know, it's probably only about three miles. This is about two miles. This is a little, little itty-bitty town. And Bethphage means house of figs, if you care. Uh, <laughs> but, the, uh, but I think as you, as you look at this, we're going to talk about w how he might have normally moved around, and that kind of helps us some when we think about it. Because Bethany was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And most likely, this is where Jesus normally stayed when he came to Jerusalem. Uh, he probably stayed with them because they had some wealth. Now, we know also that Lazarus and his family also were a place where um, people who were down on their luck and were poor were able to come, um, uh, Jews who were in need of that. You go back to John, if you remember this. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So you see, you know, he goes, he goes there some. We think they probably went there a lot. He seems, and when you get to in John 11, when you have the raising of Lazarus, it looks like he knows Mary and Martha pretty well. And even, you remember what Lazarus was called? You know, he, Jesus loved him. You know, so there's, there seems to be a relationship of, 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 of respect between the two. Um, I know this is an aside. I, I shouldn't get into him, but what, what do you think Lazarus and Jesus talked about? Or Lazarus and anybody? You know, what's interesting when you read through that, you've got this wonderful raising of lights. In John 11, we hit it. Um, no other gospel records this, which is interesting to me. Um, I think I know why, because you can read John. It's not really that hard. But, you know, what we don't have in Scripture, I mean, it seems like to me it'd be nice to just have a roving reporter from the Jerusalem Gazette come up and say, tell us what it was like between the time you died and the time he said, come forth. I want to know that. Uh, but we don't get it. So what does that tell us? We don't need it. We're just supposed to have faith that God knows. What, I mean, sometimes you, you t tell jokes about it. It's like, well, you, and it's not really even a joke. Do you think Lazarus wanted to come back? I would say no. I mean, it's like, I could just imagine, you know, he's, he's like, hey, I'm good. It's been over three days now. You know, I know my body stinketh, but my soul beeth okay. And, and you think about, I mean, I don't know how it works. You got to be careful with these little things, but... It, you know, could you imagine, you know, one of the angels or Yahweh himself come up and saying, well, you got to go back. It's like, you're kidding. Well, what do you want me to do that for? Well, it's, it's for the good. All right, I'm going to go back. You know, so I don't know if he's grumpy the rest of his life or not. I doubt it. But, yeah, and who knows how that all works. But um, we're not given that. I think, I guess the point I want to make is there's sometimes in Scripture that we aren't given maybe what we would like to know, but we have to believe. I think that's a big part of an evangelical free church. What we have is what we need. And if we don't have it, you don't need it. You might want it. 
And, if, you know, put that on. I've got a different bucket list than the one that most people have, I think. I don't really want to hang glad I'm going to wait to the new heaven and new earth where it won't hurt if I fall. Um, and I won't throw up on the way up. Uh, you can ride all those rides you get dizzy on, I, I think, maybe. I don't know. It's a whole other thing. But, the, you know, that's one of the questions I have. What was it like? But I suppose once we get there, we're like, well, it's like this. <laughs> so it probably won't be a question we have anymore. But this is probably a place that Jesus went. And then the village that speak to, spoke about in, in verse 30 here is Bethphage. That's where he's getting this. This, and it's a little interesting, you know, it's, it's almost like, and I don't know if you're a Star Wars person or not, but uh, it's almost like a Jedi mind trick here, you know. You have no need of that cult. You, know, you, have, you have to do this, too. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's interesting. We're not told, I, I think we've talked about this before, that possibly, and when we went through this in John, it looks even more likely, that these were Essenes who were single men that have vows of chastity that kept these houses for poor folk. And a lot of those apparently followed Jesus and became believers. Um, they would know who, 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 so somebody, he probably already had called ahead. It's like call ahead seating, you know, call ahead donkey getting, I guess, if you want to do this. And it's possible that Jesus just said it and he did it. I mean, I'm okay with that too. Again, do we need to know that? No. Why do we go into that? To make a 30-minute sermon? Well, yeah, that's one of the reasons. Now, the main reason you do that, you ever think about when you study the Bible, don't just study it for yourself. When you come to a passage, think about what somebody else may stumble on. This may not mean anything to you. I don't know. Somebody got the cold. Who cares? What if somebody, well, I don't get how that would happen. Think about that. You might just help someone. You know, the essentials is all we really need to know for sure, but let's, let's try to get in it and understand it. In verse 33, owner here is, in Greek is kairoi, while Lord is kairos. So I think it implies that the Lord, the king, is, he, he's the rightful owner of all we possess. And that's a, we have that in the Psalms. You know, I know we, we look at what does that mean? Well, you, you wouldn't have anything. The clothes on your back, wouldn't, you wouldn't have. It wasn't for the grace of God. We always have to remember that. So uh, it doesn't look like, and, and Luke doesn't even say much about it. You know, they just say, why are you untying that colt? Don't try this at home. Why are you taking my Mustang? Oh, the Lord needs it. <laughs> you know, that's already happened. <laughs> and you eat the Lord, you know. And so, I mean, I don't think it's saying, you know, we, we, we could go ahead and steal with impunity because the Lord might need it. Um, but Because this is the Lord's. I think it kind of implies that. And, and it's a donkey, and, and you can get into the, the humbleness of, of all that. But look at the crowd's uh, response to Jesus. You know, only Luke mentions that the crowd shouts and actions, they start coming as he descends the Mount of Olives before he even gets into town. Uh, you probably couldn't see that uh, Kingstone Bible, but it shows that. that, that, he, that the shouts are, are coming, and that's the way you did it back then. I don't know if you knew that, but if a, uh, a king or an army or a general had won a battle, and this is a Roman thing too, but it's also a Jewish thing, when you hear that, you get the news of that, everybody gets ready and they might get palm they may get. they're just going to have a celebration and they go out of the town and they meet the winning army or king and then they escort them back in. So this is kind of what they're saying. They're wanting him to be probably a king immediately and obviously Luke has told us that's not supposed to happen. Now what about throwing your coats on the ground? We have parades and what would we do? We would throw candy. 
No, but what, what is the throwing of the clothes? You, you see this back in 2 Kings when Elijah says that Jehu is the king. It's, it's a way of showing that we are your subjects. So it's a pretty humble thing to do. Um, because back then, it's not like a lot of people had 40 or 50 shirts. So once they got done picking that up, they had to go wash it at the laundromat in Jerusalem. You know, it's, it's a big thing to do. You know, you, you think about when you get, when, you know, when they tear their clothes because they're so upset about the blasphemy, that might be the only clothes they have. <laughs> you know, so it's really showing to us. It's like, well, I tore that. I'm going to get my other purple shirt. Um, it's not quite as big a deal. Now, Luke is also the only one that, that draws attention to the main reason the crowds are excited. There, it says that they're excited because of the mighty works he had done. And in my opinion, it's probably a little bit of a, of a shout to, the, the, to John 11 thing. Because you think of all the things Jesus did, raising somebody from the dead's got to be up there, right? That's hard to fake. And he did that, you know, three times. And this, and this one was really visible. You know, the other, there was a boy in, in Nain that had died, and his mom, it was a funeral procession, and then the guy kind of gets up. That'd be an interesting funeral. You know, sometimes when I do a funeral, you know, you'll, a lot of times you'll do the, you know, you do the, 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 the sermon here, and then you go out to the graveside. And that's what they were doing. And you kind of, I mean, I always kind of have it ready anyway, but you kind of think, how did that go? And, what, you know, what am I going to say at the graveside to, to kind of land the plane here for him and all that kind of stuff? Well, that'd be interesting if you're going out to do the graveside and the person who's dead's now alive. You're going to say something completely different, right? And that was one of, remember the, the young daughter of Jairus was another, but that was just a few people. Lazarus was, everybody knew it. And if you remember in John, it's one of the funniest scriptures in all the Bible, funny in kind of a morbid way. Well, it was. Um, they, 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 they want to kill Jesus after he raises Lazarus from the dead, and they want to kill Lazarus too. And I think it's funny because it's like, well, it didn't take the first time. I mean, could you imagine, you know, they stick him and they kill him again, and Jesus goes, Poop. try it again. <laughs> How many times are we going to do this? I got all day. You know, I, you know we don't, but this is what they're, they're excited about what he did. And I think it also shows us something. They're excited but misguided, right? And I don't think we want to, we probably would be too. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't, we don't live back there. We don't have, but they didn't have the whole gospel. The disciples didn't even know what was going on yet completely. They're excited about who Jesus is, but maybe misguided. But not all of them were, and we know that from Scripture. So what they shout, in, and you'll see that all the Gospels do this, they summarize. Um, this is a summary of, of Psalm 118, which is a Messianic Psalm where we get the word Hosanna from. Notice he doesn't use Hosanna. It's just implied. You can read Psalm 118, the whole thing, if you want. Uh, it's a Messianic Psalm that talks about the salvation from God and access to God that only comes through this Messiah. Now, what a lot of people believed back then, especially the leaders, that the Messiah will come, get rid of all these nasty Romans, give us back our land, and then we can work on being more righteous. Almost to the point that we can be unrighteous until that happens. You had like the zealots that they would, you know, they'd kill a Roman if they had the opportunity. Because, you know, that, well, the Bible says clearly in the Old Testament, thou shalt not murder. Well, but, yeah, we'll take care of that stuff after the Messiah gets here and gets our land back. See the problem with that theology and ideology? It's a little, little tough. So Luke omits this word, Hosanna. The other three Gospels do include this. And 
why? You, you know, you, well, maybe Luke writes to primarily Greek audience. Maybe they didn't really understand the Hebrew part of it. I don't know. Um, again, we're not to know that. Another thing that's interesting is the fact that these were branches is in Matthew and Mark, but the fact that they came from palm trees only comes from John. Uh, why do I tell you that? Because you really got to have a harmony of those. Uh, I, I've done this before in, in uh, Bible studies. I'll say, you know, what's your favorite gospel? And, you know, everybody has their, you might have whichever one you want there. Um, I'm wondering if that's a bad question. Um, not that it's, you know, you can have a favorite, I guess, but it, you're, you're not reading ice cream, right? It's not like Matthew's vanilla and, you know, John is fudge ripple. They, you really need to know them all, right? And why did God give us four? Because he thought we needed four, I guess. I think that's good. There's a lot of scholarship about that. I don't know. He gave us four. Move on. Just don't worry about that. But getting them all, we get this, you know. Why did, but I think you, you want to come into the context of each one. So the theme here in Luke is Jesus' kingship and his unique messianic role. And what's he doing? What's this Messiah supposed to do? Include people who follow him into God's kingdom. That's the main thing. That's what Messiah is here for. Well, how does one do that? Well, God's kingdom ultimately is a perfect place with no evil, no sin. That causes a problem for us. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be done to us to help us be able to get into the kingdom. That's what he's coming for. So, this implies salvation from sin always versus the wrath and spiritual death that you get if you're not part of the kingdom. You see this in Colossians 1. He has delivered us, the us there is people who believe from Colossae in this case, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So that's the thing. It's always binary in the Bible. You notice that? Two paths. You know, there's only two ways. There's the way to life the way to destruction. There's Jesus or not Jesus. There's heaven or there's hell. There's being part of the kingdom or being part of the darkness, as this says. That's it. There's no middle ground. You know, people try to put middle ground in there, and you're welcome to do that. You're just not going to get that from the Bible. And I think it's a little lukewarm to do that, don't you think? It's kind of like being a little bit pregnant. I mean, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? And I think that you're either in the kingdom of the light or you're not. And telling somebody that you can kind of be in there but not, it's, it's just, what's it make? Cheap grace, weak disciples, and impotent churches. And that's not what we want. We've got to be all in for him. So 39 and 40, which we read, they're also unique to Luke. Um, they describe both the Jewish leadership's rejection, because they say, you know, tell people, rebuke your disciples. Not just tell them, be quiet. It's rebuke them. Tell them that what they're doing wrong. And pro maybe their motive was they didn't want the Romans who were just above in the Antonio Fortress there, off, if you're coming in to be up here, they probably could see what's going on. And you got some dude on a donkey coming in with clothes on the ground and palm branches. They probably were getting a little worried. Maybe that's what they're worried about. But they reject Jesus' kingship and messiahship. That's really all it is. It comes down to that. This is in you know, Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Everybody has to answer that question for themselves. 
The fact that all creation was made to worship the king, who is Lord of all, he shows, I think, from that stone thing. Let heaven and earth praise the Lord, the seas and everything that moves in them. And it, maybe it's a metaphor, but I guess I'll ask you this. You can yell it out, yes or no. Do you think if Jesus really wanted those rocks to cry out, he could have? He did a donkey, right? I think he could do a rock if he wanted. The Muppets did that. I don't know if you know this. But this would be miraculous. I mean, God can do what he wants. And obviously, when you look at like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, it's the idea when you look out, you look through a microscope or you look through a telescope, you should see the handiwork of God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Why do some people not see it? Because they're not in the kingdom of the light. It's really, again, back to that binary thing. So, moving on, 41 through 44. So, he's in the city now, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Kind of an interesting way. Most likely people heard him say this, but he laments over Jerusalem because it's going to get judged. This is very Old Testament-like. If you remember, Jeremiah comes to Zedekiah, says, you need to surrender. You're going to lose. Nebuchadnezzar is coming in, and God has told me that you are losing, so just surrender. But they didn't. And eventually the temple gets completely cut down and the city walls get completely, not one stone left upon another. That happened in 586 B.C. Um, and prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel were exiled because of that along with most of the Jewish people. When you see that not one stone upon another, that's, that, that's like, oh, this is going to happen to us? And why? Well, it says here because you did not know the time of your visitation. Visitation of whom? Yahweh. I mean, you think about those people who died that met Jesus and never believed in him. Yahweh was in front of them, and they didn't realize it. And I don't think it's because it was some happenstance or some flippant ways, because their heart just not did not want to know God. They wanted to be their own God in some way. Jesus is still outside the city. He gives two theological things that we can kind of get out of this. The first one is just a very practical thing. Jeremiah said, this is going to get wiped out if you do not repent. You're going to lose anyway. You're going in exile. But is this going to get completely wiped out if you don't repent? They didn't repent. It got completely wiped out. I don't know if you knew this. This is probably around 30 AD. It's kind of the date we, we give the crucifixion. You wouldn't think what we missed Missed about three years, the first dude that came up with the calendar. So instead of changing all your check dates, we just moved Jesus' birth. It was easier. But this explicitly came through in, in 70 AD. That's what happened. The, the, the Roman under Vespasian came in around 67, 68, started sieging the city because they were rebelling, and Rome came to crush them. I don't know if you remember Roman history, but eventually a Nero dies, a bunch of emperors come. There's three emperors in eight months. Eventually Vespasian goes back to be emperor to get Rome, and he actually 
brings Rome back to its power, and his son Titus finishes the job. And you can read this in Ju Josephus' Jewish Wars, and it is morbid, and not funny morbid this time. Uh, I, don't even, I won't even mention what they'd had to do historically. When Jesus said that, you know, nothing greater ever could be worse than this, I think we read that and you're like, you know, it couldn't. Everything gets torn down. But the reason for the second coming of Jesus is strongly implied here. This is what's going to happen to your soul if you don't repent. You know, we have that in the Old Testament. Repent and your city will not get destroyed. Repent and you won't lose the land. But it's still implied. Why? Because you're repenting. You're not repenting to the land, right? You're not repenting to the city. You're not even repenting toward the temple. You're repenting to Yahweh. This is just a symbol of that. And, it, and you come back and he's saying that if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen to your life. Not one stone. Your foundation is not there. If you're built on sand, it's going to fall. The other thing you see here, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things made for peace. We get into this, what I call God's multifaceted will. Sometimes we, we, we use that term. I've heard people say, well, what is the will of God in this? Or I want to be in the center of the will of God. It's, you know, use your tactics, folks. Uh, well, what do you mean by that? Because we see Jesus' desire here in verse 42. His desire is that they would come to him. That's God's, what we maybe would call his moral will. I don't know if you knew this, but God's desire for each one of you is that you wouldn't sin. And you don't have to show of hands here, but did anybody sin this past week? I was just waiting to see if anybody would put up their hand. I did. <laughs> just one, no, no, not two. <laughs> it's kind of the way it goes, right? You start thinking about this, you know, you've got, God does not want you to do this, but he allows us to do it. That's God's moral will. How do we know we're going against it? There's only one real way to know this. Well, two, if you, the supplemental way. You're not going to know if you break God's commandments and if you don't know what they are. And we have that out there. Well, you know, it's been for years that way, you know. Sexual relationships, well, I love them, so it must be okay. It's like, well, I was reading in here, and he said no. <laughs> and who do I go with what I think is right or what God thinks is right? Who's Lord? <laughs> you are, if you're just going to say. So that's, people can disobey his moral will. People do it all the time. But he gives us clearly what it is. The other supplement to that is that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit that you get is he reminds us of his word. But again, we've talked that to before. You're not going to know his moral will and be reminded of it if you don't read his word. You have to know his word to be able to get this right. And I think clearly in the Bible, ignorance is no defense. It isn't an offense when you're speeding, usually. Uh, you, know, you can try, you know, Osfer, Osfer, <laughs> officer. If you got that, you're really in trouble, I think. Uh, officer, I thought it was 85 up here to the church. Oh, that's kilometers per hour. Oh, I always get that metric thing. Is that you're going to say, well, yeah, that's fine. Here you go. I mean, and it's the same thing here. Does God think a human being should be able to know what he revealed as his moral will? I think so. He's not going to judge us on something that we 
would willfully be able to be ignorant enough and it's his fault. He's given us what we need. But on the other side, we get this final destination of those who we reject God's true Messiah. This is set and cannot be thwarted. This is what we call example of God's sovereign will. This will happen. You know, Jesus will come again. There will be a final judgment. Revelation 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death is when you die. The second death is when your soul gets ultimately separated in a way. And people say that. It's like, well, you know, people are separated from God now, not the way it's talking about here. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Crops still come up for bad people. Some of the worst people in the world have the best jobs. God still gives grace. There's people who know Christ that are lifting up the world with their actions that gets permeated to people who don't. That's all gone in here. There is nothing redeemable. Anyone's name, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is ultimate grace. How do you get your name in the book? I believe. I follow. I surrender. You're my king. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. My life is lived for you. You know, get your book in there. Get your name in the book. That's it. It's grace, folks. Because you remember right before this, it was books were open and they were judged by their deeds. Do you want to get judged by your deeds or you want to get judged by Jesus' deeds? Choice is up to you. It's not a hard choice, is it? I, I would figure everybody here, you're probably here because you want to make that second choice. I want to be judged by his deeds. That's grace, folks, because he did some really cool stuff as we're seeing here. We saw that in John. We see it here. He's always in charge. Well, Yahweh is always in charge. So let's finish this up because he's in charge, so he's going to go to the main place and show some stuff. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his word. So at this point, they're still following him. Because, you know, who knows why, but they're still following him. But the sovereign king, who they didn't know who he was, he judges the temple leaders and uses the use of God's house, calling it a den of robbers. And we can go into that. You, you probably know that story. That's why we don't sell Girl Scout cookies in our foyer here. That's really, you could sell Girl Scout cookies. I don't think that's, it's, it's the heart. You know, they were turning this in, in the court of Gentiles where the Gentiles were supposed to come and they, they called them God seekers, Yahweh seekers. It was a way to come and start understanding who Yahweh is and pray in your own place. And then you could become a proselyte to Judaism and then get into the main part of the temple. And they were turning it into Walmart. Or Target, I don't care. I don't want to get anybody from Walmart mad at me. It was not for that. It was for worship. So those who were truly t trying to honor Yahweh and be part of God's kingdom would have realized the temple was for prayer. And I think that's a catch-all word to some. It's, it's connecting with, that's what prayer does, worshiping God. Even the sacrifices were only accepted from the truly humble and repentant. I don't know if you knew that. You know, you think about the sacrifice, and sometimes we do this in our own lives, right? If you only come to worship because you think you get points, I'll give you a point. I gave you extra points that day, it really snowed. The problem is, I don't know how many points you need. I don't think you need any points. You just need Jesus. <laughs> so you can get all the points you want. 
But you think about it, it's the heart. It always was the heart. Looking back to Isaiah, it kind of made Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, we know those texts. Isaiah 53, we'll know well the suffering servant. But back in the very beginning of Isaiah, this is Yahweh through Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. But wait a minute. Who came up with this system? He did. But it was always symbolic. When you spread out your hands, which is what they did for prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. What an interesting line. And you, you think about that in, in, in what Jesus is going to go through. Your hands are full of blood. You've got stain. You've got sin. You have not come to me as a repentant person knowing before a holy God you have no business sacrificing to me. And the only reason you get to do this is because of my grace. And you think about if you if you have blood on your hands, it, spiritual blood, there's only one way to get rid of it. You know, that's what's so cool about this. Get rid of the blood. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse you from all unrighteousness, as John says. So it's always that. And they were taking this away from people. They were not honoring Yahweh by what they were doing. In my opinion, it's just something to throw out. You get this in Matthew. I think he took over the temple for a couple days. I think that's the way it's put. It's kind of here in Luke. But he wouldn't let anybody sacrifice for a while. And it's interesting. They had all these guards and all these swords, and they're like, well, let's just kind of stay back. Why? I don't know. They must have saw something in him. He has help. Maybe the people, we know the crowds are for him. Maybe they were helping. But this should also have been a reminder that Jesus had now replaced the function of the temple. I always thought it was cool. I went to seminary, learned languages, learned theology, Learn worship practices, all those wonderful things. We never had to learn how to kill goats and rams. I don't know if I would have went, although I could do it. I, was, I worked for the Oakland beef plant for a little while. I think, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we, you know, some people say about altar. You know, there's no altar in, in churches. <laughs> That's for sacrifices. We have a table. We'll have one of those Thursday night if you want to come. Um, but we clearly get this because this is the second time he does this. If you remember, he does this early in his ministry in John 2, and, and let's look at that. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You're turning all this stuff over. You're telling us that we're not doing the right thing. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it was, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. What the sacrifices do is they point us to the sacrifice of Christ. Now we don't do them anymore because, as Hebrews says, the once offered and final sacrifice is sufficient for our sins. I like that word, sufficient. It's necessary. A lot of people tell you Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is necessary, but they'll add things to it. The Bible says it's sufficient. You don't need to add anything to it. In fact, if you add anything to it, you're taking something from it. So I can do anything I want, not if you truly believe. <laughs> Why would you? 
If you believe in Jesus as King, Messiah, Lord, as Yahweh, as the one who saved you from destruction, why would you not want to serve him? What type of faith is it to say, give me what I want, but I won't honor you the rest of my life? That's not true faith. But he's speaking about the temple of his body. It doesn't have this here, but he's also showing that too. The sacrifices, after Jesus died on the cross, they lasted another 40 years, but not one of them did a, how do they say it on, on uh, Andy Griff, a tiddly hoot. It did not matter at all because they were not, the sacrifice had done. People still did them. And if there was a temple, isn't that interesting? It's kind of an aside, but we won't go there. There's no temple. Hadn't been one since 70 A.D. We don't need a temple. We have Jesus. So Luke ends here with the chief priest. He, he shows a clear difference between the people in Jesus' day, and it's a clear difference that we have today, right? Those that reject his teaching and doctrine and those that accept his teaching and doctrine and trust him. How do you know you've accepted it? Because it looks like you're following what he said. How a person responds with their life to the king determines their eternal destination then and now. And we'll end with a couple earlier verses from Luke. One, both very good scriptures, ones that you know. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? If you're not doing what he said, or at least trying it, he's not your Lord. Someone else is. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And what that means is that you need to focus on the one who has sacrificed himself for you every day because he's not only your Savior, he's also your Lord. Let us pray. Father, we know you are holy, are wonderful. Uh, you have a kingdom. Clearly, heaven is your kingdom. You are there now. You give us the privilege of praying to you. But we can become part of that, and it's, the gospel is so clear. You know, all we have to do is surrender our entire lives to your son, and we're part of your kingdom. May each one of us want to do that with our thoughts, our motives, our actions, our, our very lives, wanting to live like you are our king. Amen.